So we are in the midst of a series on community. We're going to wrap up this month's focus on community by reading our last passage from the book of Acts. What we're doing this summer, for those of you who don't know, is we're taking a little bit of time each month to explore some passages in Scripture that talk about what it means to be in community together. And what I'm looking for, as somebody who is sort of digging into these passages, these stories, these narratives, is what can we learn about what it means to be inspired into community, and what can we learn about what it means to actually live into that community together. And we're doing this, of course, because as a congregation that is coming out of this period of COVID, I don't quite know what to call it. I don't think it's post-COVID yet. There's still a lot of COVID in the world. But we are also, at the, t- at the same time, really hungry for connection with each other because we were denied that connection for so long. And then we, as a church, simultaneously have experienced a lot of growth in the past two years. And so we have new people who are hungry to be in community with each other in ways that are safe and accepting and inclusive because, of course, that's who we are as a church. And so we're leaning into that this summer to try to figure out how we can live into that in a faithful way. So we're going to take a look at the last passage from Acts chapter 2 today. And then next week, what I want to do, and I want to invite you to be a part of this, next Sunday, instead of a typical sermon, we're going to have kind of community dialogue together about what has come up for us as we've read through these passages, or what ways have we experienced community that have been uh, powerful or healing or maybe harmful. And so you're looking for something that is healing and good. So that's what we're doing next week. So uh, don't freak out. Uh, But next week, I'm going to give you an opportunity to share a bit more from where you sit. And it's my hope that we can learn together as we do that. But before we get to that, let's jump into Acts chapter 2. And before we do that, as usual, would you just pray with me for a moment? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather here today, to uh, gather here in our sanctuary on the corner of Freeman and Topeka, and also to gather wherever uh, other members might be watching on Facebook and YouTube. We pray that as we explore what it means to be community together, that it wouldn't be limited or restricted to just those who are able to gather face-to-face in Oceanside, but that that sense of community would also be empowering to those who are in uh, Orange County and Riverside County and uh, South and Eastern San Diego County and even outside the state of Utah, those who are uh, watching and participating online. We know that we're entering a time when what it means to be connected and what it means to be church in a post-COVID world is being renegotiated and redefined. That's new for us, God, and anything new feels a bit scary and a bit uncertain. And so, God, it's our prayer that you would teach us to be connected meaningfully to each other, even across those distances, that we would be able to extend love and care for each other in that way. So we pray that you teach us something today as we open these words and and read together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, By the way, when my... uh, semi-adopted son. That's a whole other story, by the way. When Janelle and I were 24 years old, we semi-adopted my youngest cousin, who at the time was 12 years old. Generally, I wouldn't recommend that 24-year-olds adopt 12-year-olds, but we did. Uh, We had this odd situation where my youngest cousin was living 
uh, in abandoned houses with his mother, who was a heroin addict. And so we had an opportunity to take him in. We were living in Utah at the time. We took him in. His name was Chris. Uh, he was 11 years old, almost 12 years old, and he was 98 pounds, if I remember right. He was extremely malnourished and extraordinarily energetic and quite difficult and unaccustomed to boundaries of any kind. So that was a challenge for us as 24-year-olds. And I thought, you know, what better way for me to like jump in and be a dad to this like, you know, 12-year-old kid as a 24-year-old than to coach his baseball team. Now, I don't know if you have ever coached a sports team <laughs> ever, uh, but it will challenge all of your beliefs about humanity. And uh, today's sermon is not about the horrific things that you see on a baseball field amongst 12 and 13-year-olds, because actually the 12 and 13-year-olds are pretty great. No, no, it's their parents who are horrific. And I bring this up because I feel like when I was 24 years old, 25 years old, and coaching Chris's baseball team, uh, I got to see the very best and the very worst of what it means to be a father. Now, I don't want to, you know, be like gender exclusive because some of the ladies there were awfully difficult as well. Uh, but the point is, I, I got to see the best and worst of what it means to be a parent. And particularly as fathers, as I was coaching this 12 and 13 year old baseball team. And the, the best, of course, were these amazing moments that I got to see on the field when dads and grandfathers and brothers would like, you know, teach and guide and nurture and encourage and genuinely coach in the best possible way their grandson or son or brother to, you know, discover that they were empowered, that they were capable, that they were uh, actually worthy of the attention that they were getting and that what they were doing was fun and exciting and, and challenging and stretching, all that good stuff I got to see Dads and grandfathers and brothers express that sense of what it means to really care for another human being. And that was amazing that I got to see those examples. But I also got to see the other side of it, which was dads and grandfathers and brothers fervently, virulently expressing their anger or frustration from the other side of a chain link fence when a call didn't go the way they thought it should, or even worse, when their son or grandson or brother didn't perform according to the standards that they expected them to. And I got to see them spitting all kinds of vile hatred towards these 12 and 13-year-olds. Both of those things exist at the same time in the world of, you know, youth baseball or youth soccer, youth football. Now, like Roy said, it's complicated, right? I mean, there's a lot of complication built into the human condition. What I noticed in that time doing that was that sometimes the difference between being a good male figure in the life of these boys and being a bad male figure in the life of these boys Boiled down to a distinction that I think we're going to see in this passage, believe it or not. I did not plan for Acts chapter 2 to be a Father's Day sermon, and that's not what it is. But the distinction that I noticed was a distinction between cooperation and competition. Cooperation and competition. And what I noticed is that when men were at their best in a youth sports setting, they were attuned to the spirit of cooperation. Even though baseball is a competitive game, 
It is, after all, just a game. And the competition inherent in that game affords an opportunity for, for people to learn and to grow and to have fun and all of that. But to coach, to play together as a team, to help each other grow, that requires cooperation, which I think is a kind of spirit of generosity. But the worst versions of those men typically were so given over to a spirit of competition, they were so utterly sold out to winning at all costs that no amount of insults, no amount of vitriol, no amount of anger was enough in order to achieve the win. And so competition had so taken over their posture in life that they didn't see the damage that they were doing. One of the things that we see in this passage is that the spirit that comes in Acts chapter 2 takes on a very particular form by the time we get to the end of the chapter. So would you look with me at Acts chapter 2? If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It's Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse uh, 43. I believe we're going to have the passage up on the screen for you. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have you know, a phone that you can look it up on, uh, here's what it says, verse 43. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Now, this is an odd place to begin a passage. Awe came upon everyone because of many wonders and signs. So I'm just going to pause here and remind you what has happened. The beginning of Acts chapter 2 is when we celebrate the birth of the church, Pentecost. We did this two weeks ago. We talked about this really odd passage where Tongues of fire come down above the heads of all of the disciples who are gathered in the upper room and they're waiting for the promised spirit of God to come. Tongues of fire come from heaven and land on their heads. And what I said to you two weeks ago was that was a symbol of how God's power was being given to God's people. That fire is a symbol of power in the ancient world. And then last week, we read on and saw how the disciples then spoke in foreign languages, that they were empowered by the Spirit of God to speak and to understand and to hear foreign languages. And we call that tongues in Acts chapter 2. And I know that sounds sort of weird, and it opens up all kinds of bizarre, you know, conversations that the church has handled very poorly over the years. But last week, I said that that also was a symbol. That just like fire in the ancient world was a symbol of the power of God or the power of the gods, that this symbol of tongues being spoken and heard in different languages speaks to how the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God comes, it enabled the disciples to understand what God was always all about. And then we saw Peter quoting from the prophet Joel, where Joel says, in those days... My spirit will be poured out on all flesh. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you have been marginalized and disempowered historically by culture. When the spirit of God comes, it is for all people. And it was providential, I think, that that passage that we read about the spirit of God coming to all people was read and taught here on Pride Sunday. Because the Spirit of God is for all people. And so that sign, that 
that tongues, that speaking and hearing, foreign languages represented divisions being overcome. That there are no longer those who are in and those who are out. That when the Spirit of God comes, everybody is included. Okay, so that's what we've said the last couple of weeks. So here is where we are now. As a result of this overcoming of division, as a result of the Spirit of God coming upon all people, no matter what ethnicity they belong to, no matter what language they speak, whether they're male or female, young or old, as a result of that, verse 43, awe came upon everyone. People were in wonder that old divisions had been erased. People were in awe that the Spirit of God came in such a way that all people were empowered. It says something about signs there. We'll get to that in just a moment. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, here is what I think is going on. When the Spirit of God comes, there is a natural, logical outcome of that Spirit. And this is it. When the Spirit of God actually comes to all people, all flesh, it breaks down all barriers of division, includes those who have been excluded, there is something that is a natural byproduct of that Spirit. And that's what we're reading about. The natural byproduct of it. Here's what I'm noticing. Verse 42 and 43 All who believed were together and had all things in common. The first thing I notice is that when the Spirit of God comes, it builds belonging. You see, if the Spirit of God, love and power, comes and breaks down all the things that used to divide us, all the things that used to separate us, what that produces is a group of people who belong to each other. They belong to a community. And they, even more than that, they belong to a group of people who used to be separated from each other. This is, of course, one of the things we know that is a basic human need is a sense of love and belonging. It it came up, I think, a few moments ago when Roy was asking for people to share what fatherhood at its best means, and what we heard consistency or consistently rather, is that fatherhood means that that this person who represents the father in your life accepts you no matter what. That this person is there for you no matter what. That this person protects you no matter what, doesn't reject you. This is just a reflection of a deep human need that we all have to be loved and to belong. It is an act of violence that is traumatic and harmful to people when they are excluded and rejected. It's one of the worst things we can experience psychologically. In in fact, exclusion and rejection are so harmful and hurtful to us psychologically 
that it can manifest physiologically as illness and disease. It's one of the things that we've observed about people who live on the street. The people who are denied housing and denied community, they end up experiencing much higher rates of mental illness, much higher rates of disease, much higher rates of chronic sickness that ultimately create a kind of feedback loop that, help, that, that causes them to fall into a kind of downward spiral of health. And, and one of the things you know, if you're familiar with people who live on the street, is that they, it, that need is so deep, that need for beloved, lo, uh, love and belonging, rather, is so ingrained that they will create community where no community existed before. This church has a very long history of serving the needs of people who live on the street. And one of the first things I've noticed is that they will create very tight, very close-knit pockets of community amongst themselves. Now, it's not always a healthy community, uh, but neither is yours. <laughs> you know, we all have dysfunctional families, more or less. But that need for love and belonging is, is physical. It's not imaginary. And here we have a group of people previously separated from each other, believing together, belonging together, and that deep sense of believing and belonging goes beyond a kind of checklist of doctrines in their head. Our companion for this series has been Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the World War II Lutheran pastor and theologian who combated the Nazi party. He wrote a book called Life Together, and I've shared a few quotes with you from that book this month. Here's another one. Bonhoeffer says, A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray. No matter how much trouble he causes me, his face, that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me, is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. What Bonhoeffer is saying here is that when we exist in community together, when we belong to each other, when we love each other, when we are interceding for each other, we find it extraordinarily difficult to hate and judge and condemn each other. Have you noticed that to be true? Like that somebody that really annoyed the heck out of you once you get to know them, like they don't annoy you anymore and that annoys you? <laughs> right? This isn't just about intercession in the sense of prayer, of course. Bonhoeffer is not just saying that when I pray for another person, I begin to love that person, although that is true. Intercession in this sense also means materially helping each other. And we see that also in this passage. In verse 44 and 45, it says this, All who believed were together and had all things in common. All things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. 
Now, apologies to all the capitalists in the room, but there's a word for this. It's anarcho-communism. <laughs> I know, Tina, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't put it in there. One outcome of community, of love and belonging, is that people are so radically committed to each other's well-being that my private personal possessions no longer take precedent over your health and wellness and well-being. And so that means that if you are hungry or you are living on the street or you are in distress or in need, that there is nothing that I own that is more important than your well-being. And I will get rid of that thing and get as much money for it as I can in order to make good for the community. Now, don't freak out. I'm not going to like ask you all to go sell your sports cars. Right? I know, because this is a super rich congregation full of sports cars. Right? Like, I often make the joke that we know Oceanside Sanctuary isn't a cult because none of you do what I say anyway. <laughs> so, for the new people in the room, don't worry. This isn't the service where I send around a piece of paper where you sign up to turn your property over to the church. What I am saying, though, is that when we genuinely know each other, when the Spirit of God has so changed us and transformed us, that we genuinely love each other, that my possessions are meaningless compared to your well-being. That's the kind of community I want to be a part of. It doesn't mean you can't have a job, make money, but save for retirement, live in a decent home. We, I, I want that for all of you. But I want that for all of you. It is meaningless for us to claim that we can love each other in spite of our differences and then allow material differences to exist among us that puts some of us in jeopardy while others of us live in luxury. The call to community is a costly one. It calls us to care for each other, to help each other when we're in need. And if this sounds like a bitter pill to you, the third thing that I'm noticing that this community is not a bitter, frustrated, angry community. Instead, it is a glad community. Verse 47, actually, verse 46. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home. They ate their food with glad and generous hearts. Glad and generous hearts. Listen, I've been in a few churches, maybe you have too. I don't know that glad and generous hearts would describe a lot of the churches that I've been a part of. Sometimes, yes. But this passage is, is describing a quality of relationships, a quality of community that produces people who are not only willing to radically sacrifice for each other's well-being, but they do it gladly because their love for each other is so deep. 
There, there's only one thing that can explain this attitude among people who are willing to sell their own possessions to provide for each other, and that explanation is that this is a miracle. And the thing about Acts chapter 2 is that we tend to think that the miracles at the beginning, where we see like tongues of fire coming down from heaven, or people speaking tongues and hearing each other's tongues, like we tend to think that's the sign, that's the miracle, but it's not. The miracle is at the end of Acts chapter 2, when you see human beings from different backgrounds who actually love each other and exist together in a community that cares for each other and does it gladly and with joy. That's the real sign and miracle that this is the Spirit of God. And what I would say to you is that anywhere this exists, anywhere, that you know that the Spirit of God is present because there are people there who love each other and are willing to help each other and to be there for each other no matter what. I don't care if it's a church or a PTA or a block party at the end of a cul-de-sac in a middle-class neighborhood, if you have any group of human beings who are loving each other instead of killing each other or calling each other out on social media, that is a miracle. <laughs> and that is the presence of the Spirit of God. Whether you hear the word God or not, whether they wear crosses around their neck or not, whether they profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or not, the only thing that can possibly explain love and mutual sacrifice from a spirit of gladness amongst any group of people is because the Spirit of God has come. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for today, for this opportunity for us to gather and learn what it looks like for us to be in community together. I confess, God, that this is a high vision of community that we fall short of. It's my prayer, Lord, that you would inspire us by sense of your spirit to at least point ourselves in this direction. That we would become people who seek to know each other to be in relationship together, to learn to love each other in spite of our differences, and to be there for each other in our difficulties and in our, our needs. God, we invite you today as we finish our time here in worship, we invite you by your Spirit to come this morning and fill our hearts and our minds to capture us with a vision of this goodness and help us to move closer to that reality in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk about a few ways that we can get involved. And I want to say to our YouTube community, I know this is a time you would normally maybe turn off your feet, but hang in there with me for a minute because we have one more thing that's pretty important to talk about. So first, my name is Janelle, I'm a minister here, and, <laughs> yes. 
and uh, I want to talk about a few ways that you all can get involved and remain in community throughout the week. So number one, we are doing another nature gathering. It's going to be June 25th at 10 a.m. It's going till noon, and it's at Guahomey Park in Oceanside. We also next Sunday have a annual congregational meeting. So for those of you who aren't normally part of a congregational church, if this is your church home, this is the Sunday next week that you will come. After church, you'll sit in here and we'll talk about our budget. I know, nobody wants to do this, but um, it's super important because you all need to know who your board members are. We're bringing on a couple of uh, board member changes. Um, you need to know where the money that you're giving is going, where the time is going. This is important. So I ask that you stay around and um, celebrate with us uh, our year, but also listen and ratify what we have going on. And then we have a monthly book club. It's every first Thursday. It's going to be July 7th at 6.30 p.m. on Zoom. So if you're trying to run home from work, you should be able to make it, I hope. And it is the, um, the Immortal Diadem, The Search for Our True Self by Richard Rohr. So good, Richard Rohr. Uh, finally, if you want to give, there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can pop a, a gift into the box that is um, by the door here, or you can scan a QR code. You can also scan that code to get involved in anything, check out what's happening, all of those great things. <laughs>